Well, so this morning we come to the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, a letter written to encourage this struggling church and guide them in living not just for their own good, but for the good of one another. And and this church, as we're going to see today, it it held a special place in Paul's heart among all the churches he planted, among all the churches that he had written to. And he closes his letter, remember we began his letter with a note of encouragement, and he closes his letter with another last piece of encouragement, showing them how they have embraced this idea and lived out this ideal. One of the ways is through their continued support of Paul in his ministry. And he chose this by highlighting three ways that we go about living for the good of one another. By being content with what we have, by being grateful for what we've been given, and being generous with what we have to give. And so first, we see the living for the good of one another. It begins with this sense of contentment that we have with what we have, right? Being content with what we have. He begins here in in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Look here with me. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you, you had no opportunity. Now remember, Paul, he's, he's writing from prison, uh, either in Rome or in Ephesus. And yet even there, as, as we've seen throughout this letter, he, he's filled with joy, rejoicing in the Lord. And, and not just a little bit, but rejoicing greatly, he says. Joy that comes from being content. But like, how? How did he do this? Well, what what does he know that we don't? Because some days it feels like it'd be easier to find the pot of gold at the end of a rainbow than to find contentment. And so if contentment is is necessary in some way of of living for the good of one another, we should probably have a better idea of how we go about finding it and, and of what contentment is and what it is not. And we see both of those here. We first let's look at three things contentment is not. Number one, contentment is not dependent on your circumstances. Our contentment is not dependent on your circumstances. Paul, he was, he was perfectly content right where he was. His contentment, it wasn't conditional. There was no if only. Instead, he, he writes in verse 11 and 12, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He he was content. He was able to rejoice greatly wherever he was, even being in prison, and in whatever situation he was facing, in any and every circumstance. And like what Paul had faced in his life, it was so absurd, it was almost unbelievable. He he wrote to the Corinthians uh, in 2 Corinthians 11 that he he was beaten near death more times than he could count. Whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked three times, living in hunger without food, not to mention the sleepless nights just due to the sheer stress and pressure of the job. And so when he says he was content in whatever situation, in any and every circumstance, he means it. And so while there were were those occasional times of plenty and abundance, there were also many times of need where he was brought low and humbled humiliated even, brought to the lowest of lows. And he resonated, resonated with the humiliation Jesus experienced in his incarnation as he referenced the, in the Christ hymn, Jesus being, being born in the likeness of men, but not just any man, born in the likeness of a slave. 
dying a death, but not just any death, dying a death on the cross. And Paul willingly embraced the suffering that comes with faithfully following the way of Jesus, of picking up his own cross and denying himself, and yet somehow remaining content through it all. How did he do it? Because he knew that his contentment was not dependent on his circumstances. And yet far too often, ours is entirely dictated by our circumstances, by where you are or who you're with, what you have, how much you have, what you're doing, how you're feeling. And we make those then barriers to contentment. And so we start chasing contentment, thinking it is, it is out there somewhere that, that, that someone or somewhere or something else will bring that contentment that we desire. And what we end up doing is, is we're looking for, for external solutions to internal problems. Clarification. That's not to say that what you're facing isn't hard. That's not to say that what you're feeling doesn't hurt. That's not to say that it's wrong to desire to be removed from whatever situation you are in, especially if you find yourself in an abusive, oppressive, unjust, and unhealthy environment or relationship. Hear me, if that's you, get help and get out. And if someone in authority or power over you has ever used a passage like this to force or coerce you to stay in an abusive relationship or a toxic environment, they are not only abusing you, they're also abusing God's word, twisting it to say what it was never meant to say. But nor is contentment a suppression of a desire for something more, for something else, or a resignation that things will, they'll never get better, that they'll just always be this way, giving up any hope for a better tomorrow. Jesus even, on the night before he was crucified, in the fullness of his humanity, he acknowledged his emotions and his desire for the circumstances to change. It says that he was overcome with such sorrow and in such agony that his sweat became like great drops of blood, praying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Your ability to be content in the midst of whatever situation you are facing and your desire to be removed from that situation, they are not mutually exclusive because contentment is not dependent on your circumstances. Number two, the second thing we see here that it is not is that contentment is not dependent on others. It is not reliant on other people. Now, if we think about prisoners in the first century, they were, they were entirely dependent on others. They were reliant on outside support for everything, for their food, for their supplies, for all of it. But not only that, there was a, there was a social stigma that came with prison uh, in a way even more so than we might think today to the point that many would distance themselves from friends or family that had been imprisoned, but not to Philippians. They didn't distance themselves from Paul, no they stood by Paul. And he knew this. He knew, as he says, that, that they were indeed concerned for him and his well-being. And that they had recently revived their concern for him. A, a kind of a, a botanical gardening term indicating that while their support had, had been lying dormant for some period of time, like say a, a bulb in the, in the winter that you've planted in the backyard, it, it had sprouted again. It was, it was blooming 
again, with Epaphroditus bringing the supplies that he needed, as he references later on in verse 18. So of course he rejoiced greatly at this. I mean, who wouldn't? It feels good when, when someone does something for you when they're there to help you out. It feels good when someone actually shows up to help you move after saying that they would be there to help you move. It feels good when others enter into your story and bear your burdens with you. But while he was grateful for their support, he clarifies at the beginning of the verse 11, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need. He's like, I'm good. I, I'm okay. Because he knew that his contentment was not dependent on them. He was not reliant on their support in order to be content. And yet so often our contentment is very much reliant on others. Of what others think of you, of what others can do for you, of how they treat you, of how they make you feel. And the pressure that creates and the power that gives, it's unhealthy and it's dangerous. It places an unfair pressure on others. It, it places an unfair pressure on your kids, on your spouse, to, to live up to your expectations, to meet your needs. It places unfair pressure on friends to, to always agree with you, always be there for you no matter what, whenever you need them, as though they have no lives of their own. And it puts unfair pressure on, on your employees at work. And that constant pressure creates conflict rather than contentment. Constantly frustrated with them for not living up to the unfair expectations you've placed on them or an unfair version you've created of them. It places an unfair pressure on others, but not only that, it gives others an unhealthy level of power over you, living for their acceptance, living for their approval, living for their love, living for their affection, fearing you will never be enough, that you'll never live up to their expectations, which can lead to entering into and remaining in an unhealthy relationship or an unsafe environment. Because when we rely on others for our own sense of contentment, we'll never truly be content. And third thing we see that it's not is that contentment is not dependent on how much you have or how little you have. It's not dependent on how much or how little you have. And it, it seems like it would be easy to be content when you have everything you've ever wanted, right? You remember when I was a kid, we would make our Christmas list going through the Sears catalog. Y'all remember what a catalog is? It was this thing about this thick, and I was a lover of spreadsheets before I knew what spreadsheets were. I would go through, and I'd make a list of all the things I wanted. And I'm like, we're a poor farming family. That ain't happening. Version 2, version 3, version 80. Here's the one thing. But so it's like, it'd be great if I could get version 1, just one Christmas, get version 1. You'd think it'd be great to get everything you want, but times of, in a times of abundance, times of, of plenty... Yet I think what we've all come to learn about ourselves is that once we have everything we want, we still want more. It's never enough. It's never everything. Once you get that new toy that you want, now you need all the accessories that go with it. And by the time you get the accessories, the toy is out of date and you need the new version of the toy. Once you get a bigger house, now you've got to furnish the bigger house and pay the bigger property tax. Once you get a promotion at work, now you want the next promotion. You ever notice that you're always out for your boss's job, kind of? We climb the corporate ladder by stepping on everybody else's head. Because the more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the more you crave. And you will do whatever it takes to get the bigger, better, faster, newer version of whatever it is that you desire, thinking that is going to make you content. 
Isn't that the whole idea of the American dream? Isn't that the foundation of capitalism based on a perpetual lack of contentment that no matter how much you have, you always want more and you don't just want more, you want it faster and you want it cheaper. And so while we rightly, very much rightly, praise God from whom all blessings flow, amen? Praising God for having supplied our every need according to his riches, he writes in verse 19. Our lack of contentment with what we have reveals our belief in some form of prosperity gospel. Believing we are deserving of more. That God owes us more. Maybe not a lot more. A little bit more. A little bit newer. A little bit faster, a little bit bigger, a little bit better. Not asking to win the lottery. Just asking for enough to be able to cover the bills this week. Not asking for a new car. I've always wanted a vet. Everybody's got like their one car and it's not always logical. I wanted a vet. But I don't need a new one. I'm fine with like a used one if that's what you want to gift for Christmas this year. Doing you service by telling you. I'm not asking for a totally clean bill of health, but man, I'd like to be able to get out of bed tomorrow morning. We're not asking for bad things. But the lie that we buy into so often is that we are not only deserving of these things, that God owes us these things, but that our contentment is found in those things. Making that thing you're chasing after, whether it is a something, a somewhere, or a someone else, making that the God you worship, making that the idol you bow down to, making that the altar on which you will sacrifice anything in search of contentment. But we not only... It's not only about being content with how much you have. When there's more than enough in times of abundance, it's also about being content with how little. When you have far less than enough in times of need, he says. I, um, you ever heard of this woman, Marie Kondo? She's a professional organizer. Yeah. That woman, we gotta watch out. Here's why. You know what she supposedly said? That a person should not have more than 30 books in their possession. Just telling you. She might be right about 99% of everything she writes about, but that one, mm -mm. 300 books. Maybe it was a typo in the statement. Maybe she meant 300 or 3,000, because like, I don't know about y'all, I got 30 books in a pile in my study waiting to be read, yet alone 30 that have been read. And while I could not disagree with her more on at least that thing, which by the way, we don't know for sure that she said it, it's one of those things attributed to her, just to clarify. I could not agree more with God in that we need to be content with less. Not a little bit less. We need to learn how to be content with much less, especially in the West where we are swimming in abundance. But let's not misinterpret what Paul's doing here. He's not promoting some form of poverty gospel, right? Swinging the pendulum so far to the other extreme, thinking that having less leads to greater holiness, because contentment is not dependent on how much or how little you have. But he not only shows us what contentment is not, he also shows us what contentment is. He shows us two things here. He shows us how it is learned and where it is formed. See, our, our desire for contentment, it, it is a good, natural desire, this desire 
for peace, right? Pursuing peace, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, of, of shalom. But sin distorts our desires, doesn't it? And we start to think that contentment lies out there. And so as a result, we begin chasing contentment rather than choosing contentment. But what Paul says here, he says contentment is learned, doesn't he? It's learned in our circumstances. For one, he says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He, he says in verse 12 that he has learned the secret. Learned is, it's, it's learned as part of our spiritual growth and formation. It's learned in per, our pursuit of Jesus. And it's learned in circumstances where you wouldn't normally be content. It's kind of like patience. Careful when you pray for patience. Because where do you find yourself when you pray for patience? You find yourself in situations that test your patience and help you learn to be patient. Sometimes we learn to be content in circumstances we don't want to be content in. But it's not only learned in our circumstances, it's also learned in community. It's learned with others. It's learned as we watch others who are content. Right? We've seen throughout this letter that the Philippians, they, they learned by watching Paul. He was the example they looked up to, that they followed after. And they didn't watch as passive spectators. No, they were active participants. They entered into his story. They were partners with him in the gospel, he, he writes, bearing this burden with him. And so we, we learn in community as, as we watch others who are content. And then we learn as we walk with others in our discontentment, in our searching for contentment, especially those who have learned to be content in the ways that we are not. Those who have learned to be content in the ways that we struggle. When we lost our first child and we're facing the possibility of, of not having children, God placed this couple in our lives, in our, in our small group actually, that had already walked a very similar path some 10 to 15 years before us. And they had learned how to be content on that journey. And they walked with us through what was one of the darkest times in our lives. Now hear me, it did not for one second suppress our desire for children. These things are not mutually exclusive, remember that? But it, we did ever so slowly learn to be content with what we had, with what we had been given, as we watched them being content, and as they walked with us, as we learned to be content. Contentment is learned, and it's learned when you're not content. But number two, he also shows us not only how it is learned, he shows us where we find it. He kind of shows us that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, so to speak. And you know, know where we find it? You might want to take a guess where we find contentment. You, you, you can say it. Through him. It's Jesus. You can give me the Bible school answer for this one. It's only found in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, most of y'all heard that verse before, and not just because Rincey read it to us a few minutes ago. It's one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. I think it's also one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. Because so often we take, we take the text out of the context, don't we? 
We take the text out of the context and we slap it on a bumper sticker or we put it on a, uh, some kind of motivational poster that hangs in the gym as you're lifting weights. I can do all things. One more rep through Christ who strengthens me. I can take another half hour off my marathon time through Christ who strengthens me. And all we're doing is showing what the coffee mug says is that I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. You can't read verse 13 apart from what comes before it and what comes after it. You can't read verse 13 apart from verse 10 and 12, which is all about enduring hardships and and contentment. You can't read verse 13 apart from the broader passage of, of pursuing Jesus, pursuing peace, and being formed into his likeness. You can't read verse 13 apart from the letter as a whole, which is about living for the good of one another. And you can't read verse 13 apart from the whole of Scripture. And so when he says all things, he does not mean anything and everything but a very specific thing. He's pointing back to verse 12. He's showing how the only way you can find contentment to endure whatever situation you are facing, the only place you will find the strength to make it through any and every circumstances, not in yourself, but in Christ, in and through Jesus I think the, uh, the CEB, the Common uh, English Bible, does a better job of, of contextualizing the, their translation, writing, I can endure all these things that he just talked about, the highs and the lows, the times of abundance, the times of need, not by my own power, but through the power of the one who gives me strength, through the power of, of Jesus turning to and trusting in him. You notice he refers to this as a secret that he's learned? He didn't know this before. Remember, this, this dude was like uh, summa cum laude. Is summa cum laude the top? Or is there somebody above that? I don't know. Dude was at the top of his class in Pharisee school. And he didn't know this then. He learned this secret a lot later. He learned it as he met Jesus. And it's a secret because those who don't know Jesus will never know true lasting contentment. It is impossible to find apart from Christ. It can't be found in something else. It can't be found somewhere else. It cannot be found in someone else. It can only be found in Jesus. It is something that we only gain by being found in Christ. That is where we find the love and acceptance we all desire. That is where we find the grace and forgiveness we are in such desperate need of, knowing our circumstances are going to change, aren't they? Our feelings and emotions change. There's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. Days where everything goes right and days where nothing goes right. A terrible, no good, very bad day. Relationships change. People come and go in and out of your lives. You will be loved by some. You will be hurt by some. And how much you have changes. There's going to be days of need and God willing, days of plenty and abundance but only Jesus remains the same. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, our constant and forever faithful source of strength. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end, our never-ending source of hope and strength, who will never, ever leave you or forsake you, but instead will be with you always till the end of the age by the power of his spirit within you. Knowing that he will return, that he will right every wrong, justice will be served, that he will restore all that's broken and the once very good creation will be renewed. That's how we can be content in the brokenness of our world today. We know how the story ends, don't we? That's just the beginning. Contentment's the foundation of this. 
living for the good of one another begins with being content with what we have, but that then leads to gratitude for what you've been given. Paul, he, he was perfectly content in prison. Yet, he says, he expressed his gratitude for what they had done in verse 14, saying, it was, man, it was so kind of you to share in my trouble. Like, that was, and not like a southern, oh, bless your heart thing. Like, no, he meant this. Thank you for bearing my burden with me. But I want you to notice, his gratitude, it went further. It went deeper, knowing that this wasn't just their doing, this was God's doing. It was God's doing through them. He, he was grateful for, for who God is. He was grateful for what God was doing in and through them, for providing for him, and he was grateful for all that God had promised to do. He didn't just rejoice greatly. He rejoiced in the Lord and what he was doing greatly because his gratitude always went back to God. It recognizing in verse 18 that, that he had received full payment already. He, he had enough from God. He was perfectly content. He was grateful for where he was. Not just physically residing in a prison, but his true residence being in Christ. And he was grateful for that. He, he was grateful for who he'd become. Remember, this, was, this former assassin turned apostle. He went from one end of the spectrum to the other, from a persecutor of the church to the preacher. Now he, he went from being an enemy of God to a beloved child of God. And he's like, that was more than enough to be content with. And yet he got more. He got to open his presents on Christmas Eve, and when he woke up Christmas morning, there was more. He was now well supplied. He, he was grateful for the gifts that they had sent him with Epaphroditus, which to him were like a fragrant offering. And I want you to imagine the stench of the prison which he would have been sitting in. This was a fragrant offering that outdid all of that. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing not only to him but to God. Because he knew that behind every good gift sent to him was God. God being the giver of the gift. And he was not only grateful, he was certain. He says in verse 19, he was certain that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Everything that we have from the breath in our lungs to our salvation is a gift given to us by a most generous God. Gifts that lead us to rejoice in the Lord greatly for the riches he has bestowed upon us. And that gratitude for what we've been given based on the contentment with what we have, it leads to generosity with what you have to give. Contentment to gratitude to generosity. See, as, a, as recipients of God's generosity, we are called to respond by reflecting that generosity to others. Seeing ourselves not as owners of everything that we have earned, but as stewards of everything that we have been given. And, and not just our finances, but our, but our entire being, our time and our talents, our hearts and our lives, all of it gifts to be used for the glory of God and the good of others. And that's true regardless of how much or how little you have. Their generosity, it, he's encouraging them because their generosity had helped more people know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus. Reminding them in verse 15 that you're, you yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, when, when you first came to faith, when you first began following Jesus, when Paul was with them some five to ten years ago, he says, when I left you in Macedonia and continued on to Thessalonica and then on into Greece, no other church that I planted entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. They were the only church who supported him financially. 
And he says in verse 16, he says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, right? More than once, whenever I was in need. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. This was not about him. This was about them. He wanted them to experience the joy that comes with living for the good of one another, with being generous with all God had given, generosity that comes from being grateful for all that God had given, gratitude grounded in a sense of contentment in any and every circumstance. And their generosity came in the midst of what Paul would later refer to as a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty that he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8. They learned how to be content with very little, grateful for what little they had been given by God. And their abundance of joy, he writes, in an absence of wealth, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They were exceedingly generous with all they had been given and all they had to give. And in some way, the Philippians, they were the OG in HCT. Uh, HCT is our term for helping churches thrive. It's a, a ministry that we started years ago to support other churches in need, a ministry we started when we were in need. And what we do is we set aside at least 10% of our giving each and every month, both in months when there's a surplus in abundance and most months when there's a deficit when we're in need ourselves. And as I shared earlier this fall in our distinctive series on a sermon on generosity, in, in the last two years, you have generously contributed enough that we've been able to invest over $125,000 in churches that are in need, especially those within Converge, the network that we're a part of, in helping other churches get started, such as Formation Church in Salt Lake City, and partnering with those who are supporting churches and pastors, one of them being Tim Beavis, a pastor who is in our group that is now working for Cary International, who travels the world, especially to closed countries, training local pastors and teaching them seminary-level courses. And our generosity as a church is only possible because of your generosity. And your generosity is only possible because of God's generosity, amen? Knowing that our God will supply every need of ours, both individually and collectively as a church, all according to his riches in the glory of Christ Jesus. And we're praying for God's continued provision here at the end of the year through your continued generosity in our year-end above and beyond giving campaign, seeking to raise $300,000 to replace our leaky, not-so-little roof. Uh, some of you may have been sprinkled on today. Uh, no, that was not baptism. That was just our leaky roof uh, anointing you with rainwater. And so far, uh, through Above and Beyond, we've raised over $48,000, which means we have only 101684 to go to drain the bucket. That water line went down even more since last week. We're going to drain this thing slowly. But we're not only praying that God would provide, we're also praying how God would provide Providing through us, through each and every one of us that calls redemption our church home, participating. And what I know as we look back at our almost 15 years as a church is that God has generously provided every need we've ever had. He provided the finances we've needed. He provided elders when we needed. He provided pastoral staff and leaders when we had a need. He provided ways for us to love and serve our community when we knew there was a need provided a drummer as one of ours was moving out of state. It's one of the hardest things for a church to find as a good drummer. And he provided this incredible home for us just over six years ago too, didn't he? He provided each of you. 
He provided us this, this thing that we get to be a part of together. He provided all of it. And like, hear me, he didn't always provide in the way that we wanted. If we were going through the drive-thru, we'd be like, hey, God, I'll take a this, that, and the other. And he's like, mm, I got a better way. Sometimes putting us in situations that taught us to be content with less. I feel like Rob is always content with like two short people. I don't mean short. Being short, two people in kids. There's no height requirement to serving kids. I didn't mean that. We got kids in sixth grade serving in kids. And yet we've always been grateful for what we've been given and done our best to be generous with what we had to give. And so to God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen? And then he's got this little close here at the end. And if you think about it, I really think this close is really one more last final piece of encouragement. Asking, asking them to, to greet every saint. Turn and greet. It's not in the Bible. I don't know. It says greet every saint. He doesn't say turn. I get it. Like, oh, go give everybody a big hug for me. Tell them I said hi. But it was so much more than that. Greet every saint. Saints, all of you. A reminder that each and every one are holy. Not by their own doing, but by their belief in something of someone else's doing, made holy by a holiness not their own but that which they gain by being found in Christ Jesus. He says, those, those who are here in prison with me, man, they greet you too. And not only them, but all the saints throughout the city, man, they greet you too. Word was spreading. Even those in the household of Caesar greet you. And he's, he's not talking about his kids. No, he's talking about the, the servants and the slaves, the guards, the, the administrators, man, the, the gardener and the cook, anyone who served in this administrative center, whether it was in Rome or whether it was in, in Ephesus, he, he wants to let them know that through their generosity and through his imprisonment, man, more people were coming to know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus. Prison was not a barrier to his contentment. It was not a barrier to him living out his mission for the good of one another, was it? And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so let's take this away from this this morning. Let's be people content with what we have. Learning to be content with what we have. Grateful for all that we've been given and generous with all we have to give.